race is a topic that makes a lot of us, and I include myself, really uncomfortable. And why? Well, because I think that most of us deep down inside, we want to believe that we're good people and that we wouldn't say or do or act racist. But here's the thing. We probably have and just didn't even notice it. I like to think about the Broadway show Avenue Q. If you've never seen it, it's kind of a ridiculous idea because it's basically real actors on stage with puppets. And it's a show that makes fun of a lot of things. But one of the songs in the show is called Everyone's a Little Bit Racist. And they make fun of the fact that all of us on some level, well, we act and do or say things that are racist. And then it got me thinking, well, how does that play out in a newsroom? And it can in many different ways. I'm going to give you an example. There was once when I was on air hosting a show and talking with reporter Nadej Green, someone I used to work with and one of my favorite people. We were talking about the 1619 Project, and I asked her a question. Nadej, what does this anniversary mean to you? And she responded calmly and patiently, I don't see this as an anniversary. The date and the history mean something very different to me. And I looked at her with a bit of remorse. Was I insensitive when I said it that way? I didn't mean to be, but in that microsecond, I realized that, well, of course, I'm seeing this historical moment from the perspective of a light-skinned, middle-aged Latino man, and she's a Haitian woman. I apologized and thanked her on air, and that's what I mean. Sometimes we could say things that are a little bit racist, but not always in a mean-spirited, malicious way, sometimes just by accident and we have to learn how to spot those moments. And that's why I wanted so badly to speak with Celeste Headley. She's been a national host for NPR for many years on numerous shows. You probably hear her from time to time on programs like Here and Now. She's also the author of numerous books, including We Need to Talk, How to Have Conversations That Matter, Do Nothing, How to Break Away from Overworking, Overdoing, and Underliving. And of course, her latest book, which is the one that I wanted to focus on, It's called Speaking of Race, Why Everybody Needs to Talk About Racism and How to Do It. How often are you talking to newsrooms and reporters about the issue of race? And I'm just wondering the type of questions that you get. So, you know, I I started a nonprofit called Headway, which is uh, focused pretty narrowly right now on bringing um, racial equity and reform to public media in particular. Um, So I am talking to newsrooms quite a bit. Um, Generally, if they're calling me, it's because something has gone wrong. Um, (laughs) And so it's it's very often... um, crisis management at that point. Um, What I try to tell people is we have to change our tactics and move away from, you know, these crisis reactions or reactionary um, to being proactive and creating muscle memory in a, in an institution, especially a newsroom, because 
when you have muscle memory, it means that even when people quit, even when new people come in, the institution itself knows how to be equitable and fair and, and just. Um, there are systems in place that are just automatically equitable and fair and just. It's not about accommodating personalities. Um, and so that's sort of what I try to get across to people is not let's deal with this crisis. Let's find the root causes of it. Let's bring up all those undiscussables that nobody's talking about and, and get to the root of what uh, created the tension here. You know, in news business, and you know this, um, we are especially prone to racial bias and discrimination. And a big part of that is because we rely on gut instinct a lot. Um, we call it news instinct, but it's really gut instinct. And gut instinct is the most vulnerable kind of thinking that uh, to discrimination and bias and unconscious and, and implicit biases. You think a news story is important because you think it is. But really, there's all these unconscious biases making you think that stories, that economic story about Boeing is more important than the story about the Latino community in Detroit or whatever it may be. So it makes us vulnerable. The One of the things that kept popping up for me, and, uh, you know, I, I do tend to overanalyze. So I was, I was stressed about thinking over the last couple of years, the way we covered the Black Lives Matter uh, marches. I, you know, I do a show with, with two producers and none of us are black. I think that we're all good people. We're all trying we're working really hard. And, you know, we're, we're sitting there asking, what are the issues? What do we need to talk about? Who do we need to talk to? And then, you know, later it hit me and I said, but did we cover this the right way? You know, the thing of it is, is that the newsrooms, um, unless you're at the network, and even if you are at the network, frankly, because every show is its own individual team, um, your team is never going to be big enough to incorporate every voice that you cover. You're not going to be able to have uh, the the blind community and the um, uh, elderly community and the Hmong community. You're not going to be able to have all of that. So we really have to make these relationships with our communities and invite them to give us feedback. We have to invite people outside of our teams even to take a listen and say, did I do this right? Can you take a half hour, listen to the story and give me feedback? And we have to be doing that regularly. It has to be part of our process that we, we do the story and then we seek out different voices to take a critical listen and let us know what we missed. Um, once you have a team that does that enough, you start getting better at identifying your blind spots. It doesn't mean you stop reaching out for that feedback, um, but you do start to get better at, at identifying blind spots. Because again, you can't rely on having a diverse enough team to include every single voice. That doesn't mean you don't want a diverse team. I mean, obviously you want as diverse as you can get, but you know, if you're in Miami, diversity means a member of the Latino or Hispanic community. That's you know, if you're in Atlanta, diversity is going to look a lot like a lot of black people. Um, so every, you know, if you're in North Dakota, uh, <laughs> you know, you, you might be able to get an indigenous person, um, but that you're going to be mostly white people. So you have to create the systems in which you are actually have a brain trust 
of people who are watching your back for you. And they're not just watching your back to which for mistakes. This isn't just about liability. It's about learning, about let, allowing your learning curve to always be on the upswing. Going back to the Black Lives Matter uh, marches of a couple of years ago, one of the things that kept popping up, and this has been a real big challenge, is, well, we've seen the reaction from a particular party, the party on the right, and how they've reacted to this. And I don't need to tell you, I think you've seen everything that's been going on in Florida. And then, of course, their pushing of laws that, as a human, you just stop and say, that's just racist. But as a reporter, you're like, how am I supposed to talk to this guy or this woman, this uh, congressional leader or this state senator without starting a fight, but to point out, why did you pass this law? And I, and I, I wondered your take on how to approach that. So I think um, media writ large is um, kind of responsible for th- in a small part responsible for where we are. And that has been um, number one, even at NPR, we took the lazy man sort of cowardly way out for a quite a long time, meaning that we did the, the he said, she said, the false balance, where rather than putting our own reputation on the line, because NPR kept getting attacked as being liberal, which is not true, They've done research studies. It's not true. But they kept getting attacked as liberal. And so in order to fix that, they would just always include an opposing voice. Right. And you you can't have an opposing voice on climate change or, or the safety of vaccines. Right. That's it's just not. That's not feasible, but that's what we did. And so it created a little bit of this combative environment. I'm not taking full responsibility, just a little. So when you are approaching somebody like that, I always like to approach them from the standpoint of, of how wide the agreement is. So for example, if I were reporting in Florida, I would say, you know, this I'm confused and I'm really hoping you can clear this up because I'm super curious about your standpoint on this. You know, we know that the, you know, support for, uh, LGBTQ communities, support for same-sex marriage is incredibly popular in the United States. That's something, you know, that's bipartisan that everybody agrees on. So let's let's dig into what it is that you're trying to prevent here. Give me the example of the, the real world example of what you're trying to prevent. You have to really use those five whys, you know, Toyota's five whys. You have to really dig down into specific examples. The, the problem becomes when you start talking in generalities. Um, the liberal agenda, the gay agenda, you're never ever, that's just talking points. You're never going to find anything of use in that conversation. You have to drill it down to specific stories, specific examples, what they specifically have experienced. What did their kids um, experience if they have children that went through? What what books did they like growing up? Um, if they liked Clifford the Big Red Dog, like have them give you specific examples. How did they learn to read? How did they learn math? You know, what are they concerned about? That Then you can get into the, the nitty gritty and you can get it out of this um, uh, this idea of winners and losers and get it more into people's stories. You know, I mean, we tell ourselves, we know this. It's about telling stories. And yet when it comes to politics and also economics, we don't do that. We allow people to give us talking points instead of specific true stories.
We're talking with radio host and author Celeste Headley, and we're talking about the issue of race and how we discuss it in our newsrooms and how we cover it as journalists. You can find links to her work as a host and her books. It's on our website, thereporterstudio.com. And while you're there, we'd love to hear your stories. What does your newsroom do to better understand how it covers the issue of race? And by the way, if you're not a reporter and you don't work in the news, well, I actually want to hear from you on this too. What do you think about how the news media covers the topic of race? Post your questions, your thoughts, your comments on our website. Again, thereporterstudio.com. Let's get back to our conversation with author and host Celeste Headley. We talked about her thoughts on how newsrooms are doing better at creating diversity and finding more voices, but that we're still very far behind. And she also raises the issue of how many stories by black reporters are actually getting a chance to be heard? I don't know if uh, my producers will be happy with me bringing up uh, Clifford the Big Red Dog the next time I talk to a Republican, I mean... but uh, <laughs> no, no, no. But you know what? The, but one of the interesting things is is that, like, say, for example, it, it, one of the big uh, controversies right now in Florida, as you know, is that they've passed this, what they like, what Republicans like to deem, they call the anti-woke law. And so now parents can challenge any book, anything on the curriculum, and they've already started banning a bunch of books. Uh, and their argument is going to be, well, it's got CRT in it, critical race theory in it. And then we keep coming back with the same thing, but superintendents, teachers, library unions have said there's no CRT in public schools. And they come back and say, well, you know, we found it. Prove it. We found it. And then I find myself stuck in a circle, going in a circle. <laughs> it's like, you know, and, and, that was, and that was one of the things, like reporters challenged them. You, they banned a dozen math books. Yeah, they banned a dozen yeah, I've books. Seen them. Math books. <laughs> Prove it. Show it. They showed four little examples, but they won't say anything else. Then what? Now we're just going in circles. It's fr it's really frustrating. Yeah, I don't report that. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I don't include that interview. Um, I I I have said to people before, I can't use that. That's not. You're not giving me an example. I can't use this. I can't use this. I can't use this. I can't use this. Um, and then I will put a statement saying, you know, we spoke to blah, 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 blah. They, you know, and I'll give an, a summation of what they said. They insist with no evidence that there's examples of CRT in the, in the textbooks. But I always have to say with no evidence. Like, I'm nobody's patsy. And one thing I learned after the Iraq war is that I'm not, you just cannot allow um, someone else to control the the story. Um, just because somebody says this is about CRT, that doesn't mean that's what I'm reporting. It was kind of like, you know, I was hosting here and now, and um, after the elections, the French election results, one of the biggest headlines everyone was broadcasting was how well the far right did. You know, this was this huge victory for the far right. Yes. But this was the first time in two decades that a sitting president in France had been reelected. And that margin by which Macron won was massive. If a president in the United States won by that margin, we would call it a slam dunk victory. 
Um, so we have to constantly step back and be realistic about what it is that somebody's saying and not buy into the 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 escalation of the narrative. I mean, it's the same thing with CRT. Look, there's it's difficult to cover this because they're not honest actors in this. And I think that we have to stop pretending like they are honest actors. We have to stop pretending like that interview is usable. It's not usable. You know, if I were to speak to somebody um, doing a man on the street tape and they gave me a completely garbled garbage talking about their niece and then nutmeg and then, you know, whatever, I wouldn't use it. I'd be like, this is unusual tape. And I find it's the same way with politicians when they're saying irrational things. I just don't use it. I wanted to ask you about this. Um, you've been in the business a while and I, I think about where I've been. Most of my career has been local. So as you pointed out, uh, depending on where you are, the newsroom is going to look a certain way. And most newsrooms I've been in have been very white. The bigger the city I got into, obviously the diversity uh, was better. But in for just your experience and in your travels and all everywhere you've been, have things gotten better? Or are we still way behind? Yes. They, they have gotten better and we're still way behind. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, at the same time that we are seeing some improvement in recruitment of uh, diverse staff, for example, this year, over the past year, we've seen, seen an unprecedented exodus of talent from public radio, not just the network. That's what makes the headlines when Audie Cornish resigns. But um, but even at, at local stations, and it has especially been women of color, which means that we have thrown all our energy into recruiting diverse talent and not thrown enough energy into creating inclusive environments where they can feel uh, supported and feel that they have a chance for promotion and growth. You know, it's, it's funny, I was talking to somebody um, at NPR about um, the bureau system, you know, NPR has bureau chiefs in different regions of the country, and they're generally the portal through which local reporters get their stories on national air. And I said, okay, so um, how many, where's the a record of the stories they've turned down? And they said, we don't keep a record of the, the pitches they turned down. And I said, okay, well, where's your record of which stories they've accepted that were successful versus the ones that weren't? And they said, we don't keep a record of that. And I said, okay, well, then how do you know how biased your bureau chiefs are? A, they're 100% older white people. How do you know if they're biased or not? If you don't know what stories they're turning, if you're keeping no metrics. Um, and they said, I don't know. And I was like, well, you have a complaint where a black reporter in Atlanta pitched a story about Kamala Harris's sorority and the bureau chief turned it down. And not that long later, a white reporter pitched a, a very similar story and it was accepted. How do you know if that was bias or not or a fluke? And they don't have any way of doing so. So when I talk about retention, this is sort of part of it or growth or promotion, you know, as a reporter, growing in this industry has a lot to do with how many stories you get on the network. 
Um, that's one of your bragging rights, right? Your news director usually wants you to be getting sto stories in the network because then all their listeners and their donors hear your call letters, right? From station WDET in Detroit, blah, 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 blah. So these portals of power that we don't give a lot of thought to are just not being, they're not being recorded. They're not being measured. We don't keep track at all if a bureau chief is good or bad because we don't know how good they are at their jobs. It's at a management level that we, where we have to start? I mean, always, but it's a systemic level that we have to start. You know, we've approached diversity so badly, and, and I write about this in the book. We have to stop thinking that racism and ageism and any of the isms are a knowledge problem. And, you know, I just did sexual mandatory sexual harassment training. That's what I just did before I got on the line with you. Um, and... For the most part, we approach it as though we have to teach people how bad racism is and discrimination is. Um, and we have to show them examples of discrimination and say, see how bad this is? Look how much this hurts this other person. Everybody knows that. <laughs> Everyone knows racism is bad. Everyone knows sexism is bad. They just don't think they're racist or sexist because the vast majority of discrimination and bias you're going to encounter is, is the product of unconscious bias or implicit bias. And so we have to, it's, it's not so much that whether it's in a, in a management level or not, it's that we have to create systems that are about behavioral science that are about either rewarding inclusive behavior and punishing exclusive behavior. We have to create those systems. So for example, I was working with a, a, a lar very large station in which after a series of surveys, we discovered their news pitching process, process was a real problem. And I went through the same thing. Okay, who's accepting the pitches? How do you know if they're good at their jobs? What are the stories they're turning down? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. They kept no record. And so I said, okay, you have to start A, including other people in the pitching process. You can create a rotating calendar in which literally everybody in the newsroom, including interns, gets to be part of that discussion on what stories get accepted and what don't. Otherwise, you're not taking advantage of your diversity. And B, you have to keep a record of which stories, which pitches were turned down. Um, and that becomes your system. And that's, yeah, that's about management, but it's really about the process. I, I'm thinking about where that's popping up. And uh, one of the things I'm grateful for is that I work with a lot of young people. And and I'm grateful for my producers who are a lot younger than I am uh, because they do point out things that I, and I, I'll admit it, that yes, that I, I'm probably thinking and speaking in, in, in a bias all the time because as the world is changing, there are things we don't say anymore. And I'm like, oh, but that's how I grew up saying that stuff. But I'm grateful for that opportunity to have people around me. Yeah. I mean, look, I work in this business and I screw up all the time. I tried to include my own mistakes, a few of them in the book, because we have to stop making those mistakes the equivalent of being a racist. Right. We have to stop making mistakes in pronouns be the equivalent of being transphobic or um, homophobic. We have to give the mistakes the, the attention they deserve, which is like, whoops, you probably didn't intend that. Um, but just let me know. Let, I'm just going to let you know that's we don't use that that phrase anymore.
This is the Reporter Studio. We're talking with NPR host Celeste Headley. Every now and then you hear her on programs like Here and Now on NPR. She's also the author of numerous books. And for today's conversation, we're discussing her latest book, Speaking of Race, Why Everybody Needs to Talk About Racism and How to Do It. We're talking about how newsrooms struggle to create diversity and also how to report on racism, how to report using more diverse voices. You can learn more about her book. It's on our website, thereporterstudio.com. Now, before we return to our conversation with Celeste, I just wanted to remind you that a new podcast is coming from the same company that brought you this one, City of Dreams Media Incorporated. It's called Planet Earth 2072. Further into the future, things are going to become more and uncertain. The are here are going to be concentrated on the high ground. And that's going to result dense. in a significant sea level rise. Maybe Tackle this issue point. and address it in a meaningful way. We're seeing by events that we can't predict. Your friends we can project things. And then that's five, six, seven people. And the change goes that is more privileged and that is not dealing with climate effects on a regular Anybody basis. Anybody to be suspicious of people who claim to know what Miami will look like in 10 or 20 years, let alone 50 years. No one can guess what exactly will happen in 50 years, except that South Florida will likely not look much like it does today. The oceans will have risen, flooding will be a bigger challenge, and things are likely to be hotter. Planet Earth 2072, the podcast, we asked the question, what will Miami look like in 50 years? What will happen and how will we prepare? We spoke with researchers, politicians, and advocates about their fears for the future. You know, it's gonna be harder to anticipate what is gonna happen from day to day. And the people who are here are gonna be concentrated on the high ground in very dense urban landscapes. And that's going to result in a significant sea level rise, maybe adding 20% to those numbers I just gave you. We also spoke with members of Gen Z. We can project them, but we really don't know what this climate catastrophe is going to look like. No matter what, that's not in your control. And I think that, you know, for acknowledging the problem now, we can definitely stop it from becoming much worse. We want to better our society, naturally. I think everyone does. The question of the future, what can we expect? Planet Earth 2072, the podcast, comes out June 2022. more at the website planetearth2072.com or on Facebook. Again, that's coming out this year in 2022. Let's get back to our chat with Celeste Headley. Again, we talked about why racism is everywhere and how we have to be vigilant. Plus, we have to ask ourselves more questions about the audiences that we're reaching, especially in public media. (music) 
something else that I wanted to ask you about, and, and this was one of the more powerful moments I think I've ever had on air is, you know, as we're covering uh, the race issues here in South Florida. Uh, and when I say that, I, I think I should clarify that, again, about talking about the Black Lives Matter movement and all the response to it. Um, I had a conversation once with a gentleman here uh, who's a professor at FIU, uh, a, a black gentleman, one of my favorite people to talk to because he's a historian who's trying to protect that history of South Florida, the black history of South Florida. But I said to him once, um, I said, I've heard that police officers uh, are, it's not so much that they're, they're racist, but that they are afraid of black men. They're afraid of black men. And it was a study from, uh, from Los Angeles that I'd pulled that from. It was an NPR story. And he said, I'm afraid of black men. And then I just kind of froze. I said, I don't even know where to go with this at this point. But it made me think about how we're reporting on crime in the city. If you have a shooting like the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas shooting, which is at a predominantly white school, compared to how many black children are dying from, you know, from uh, guns in other neighborhoods it's the equivalent, sadly, but we don't talk about that enough. We don't report about that enough. And because maybe we're viewing black men a certain way. And it got me thinking about it. And I, I again, it's one of these things. I'm trying to fit, wrap my brain around this. How am I doing my job? Am I doing my job right? Yeah. I, you know, um, there's a, a famous, and I think I probably quoted it, but there was a famous comment from Jesse Jackson um, Reverend Jesse Jackson, obviously former presidential candidate, marched with Martin Luther King, um, in which he said that he too, if he hears footsteps coming up behind him, um, he gets nervous and then he sees there are white young men and he relaxes. Um, we have to be careful. I, I hear white people using that a lot as a justification or kind of an absolve, an absolution to say, look, everybody is racist. Um, there's a difference between those who are racist and have and her perpetuated or who benefit from it and those who are victims of it. So that that's first. Um, but, you know, Beverly Daniels Tatum says that racism is like smog, that you can't escape it. You breathe it in. And it, it doesn't matter how diverse you are. I mean, look, I'm black and Jewish and Buddhist and I was a single mother most of my life. And like, I check off a huge number of boxes and yet, of course I am biased. I wrote, I just wrote a small ebook, a short ebook for Scribd called um, You're Cute When You're Mad, Simple Steps for Confronting Sexism. And the first thing I did as I began to research for that was to take the implicit association tests from Harvard that related to gender. And I'm super sexist. Like my results were you have a strong preference for women in the home and men at work. And that's upsetting to understand. But I've been breathing in sexism since I watched Happy Days and the Brady Bunch as a very, very young child. Um, so of course I have been affected by those sexist ideas. Of course, black children have been affected by racist ideas about themselves and their own families. Um, and it's horrible. But again, the, the people who have the power to change it, you know, if you're going to rank them right at the top are white dudes. And then it 
comes down from then. Just below them are white women. So in terms of those who are benefiting from racism, it's white dudes and white women. And those also happen to the people who have the most power to change it. Uh, let me just finish with this. I, I, thinking about the other thing, too, is our, our newsrooms may have, in some places, may have that diversity. Um, I and, and I'll be the first to admit that I haven't seen all the statistics, but I, I every now and then I do go and speak with you know the station manager about our listeners and and just I want to get a sense who are our listeners do we get I want to know because for me for my show it's like I, I really want to reach a lot of groups younger I would not just the older but younger and and I want to reach you know we're in South Florida I want to reach more you know Hispanic Latino Latinx people why aren't we doing that I don't get that what am I doing wrong but um, but yeah the public radio audience, still predominantly white. Um, do you think that subconsciously we're trying to cater to them in some way? I don't even think it's fully subconscious in all cases. Yes, it's subconscious, but it's also blatant. I mean, I remember at one point I did, a, we were doing a story, the census had just came out. So this must've been 2010. Um, and uh, we were doing a story about the fact that you know, not too long from now, white people will not be the majority. They will not make up the majority of the country. And um, one of our executives said, um, you really, I would not phrase it that way because that just makes our listeners really upset and nervous and afraid. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah. Um, that's, of course, as long as we continue to gear our programming toward that audience, that's who our audiences will be. If you build it, they will come. Um, so, yeah, and I remember this is at the time when the ACA, the, Ameri the Affordable Care Act, was being debated, and I had to fight tooth and nail. We did a full week-long coverage of it, lots and lots of stories, lots of interviews, and I had to fight like the Dickens to get a story on about racial disparities in healthcare. And they were like, that's not what this is about. I'm like, if you're a person of color, that is all this is about when it comes to insurance. It's you having the exact same insurance as the white dude next to you and you don't get as good of care. Of course, that has to be part of the debate over any kind of legislation. Um, but they were like, no, that's a tangent. Like, that's a totally different subject. You know, let's keep that for Black History Month. I mean, yeah, I, we are, in some cases it is subconscious, but it is also blatantly subconscious, <laughs> if that makes sense. Um, and I should also say, you know, I, I lead this group Headway and we issued a, an open letter last year a detailing, very detailed into what reforms need to happen in public media in order to make it equitable and just. And um, one of the sections was on getting rid of the idea of objectivity, for example, and just dumping it because it's racist and sexist in nature. And I got a phone call from a major, major funder saying, we can't support this letter unless you remove the part about objectivity. Because our mission is to be objective. That's our mission. Um, and and so, you know, it's built in. It it's you know it's it's the ghost in the machine. Yeah, you know what? And thank you for saying that because I I 
when I moved to South Florida and I, I grew up with that idea, nope, as a journalist, this is where I need to stand on things. Uh, you know, it's it started years back with some of the journalists here in Miami, the, the Latino journalists who, you know, started to speak up about immigration issues and people telling them, hey, you're a journalist. You're not supposed to take sides. This idea of objectivity, we need to rethink this and how we are approaching our jobs. Yeah, and for those who are interested, there's a great book from uh, Lewis Raven Wallace called The View from Somewhere, Undoing the Myth of Journalistic Objectivity. Um, Lewis was fired from Marketplace because he wrote blogs about um, being trans and how the recent debate was you know, affecting his life. And Marketplace is like, well, if you have a point of view on these trans issues, then you're not objective, you're fired. <laughs> I mean... How do I not have an opinion on my life and my safety? I don't, I'm not sure, but it's the same thing as, as like Black Lives Matter. How are you going to go to a Black person and say, you can't take a point of view on Black Lives Matter? <laughs> what? <laughs> what? Um, no, transparency is the way. And, you know, I had to do a bunch of uh, interviews about the Confederate flag after the massacre at the, the church and... We, there was a, a real reconsideration of the Confederate flag in the South. And I was broadcasting out of Atlanta at that point. And I just started every time we had an interview like that, I would say, look, I'm black. My family was on a plantation in Georgia. I obviously have strong feelings about the Confederate flag, but I'm going to be fair. And if I'm not, call us, email us. If you hear me being unfair, um, my goal is not to be objective. My goal is to be fair. Um, and that, yeah, objectivity's got to go. By the way, when is that uh, the ebook that you wrote? When is that coming out? That actually came out. It's a, a scribd exclusive. Oh, okay. Um, uh, I came up with the name myself, but I am proud of it <laughs> because you know you're cute and you're mad is so enraging. Um, uh, I think it says it all there. That that book is focused on benevolent sexism. Um, let me get that for you, hon. <laughs> Celeste, why don't you take notes during the meeting? Your handwriting is so good. All those little sweet, friendly, um, you'd be such a good mother. Um, things that we say that we don't always recognize as sexism, uh, which research shows are as damaging, if not more damaging than blatant sexism. So, The thing that stood out for me, and I really thank you for this, is that, uh, you know, don't go in trying to change somebody just start a conversation with somebody, find some things in common. I love that. I love that. You know what? I actually, I love, uh, you brought up the, uh, the, oh, what was it called? Spirit stick or the stick? The Yeah, the uh, talking stick. The talking stick. I thought, I wonder if that would work in a talk show. <laughs> Pass it around the table. Who's next? It's not a bad <laughs> idea. I mean, obviously don't use a, an, an indigenous artifact, but right, pick right. one, right? Like just pick <laughs> Whatever. I, I teach sometimes when I teach executives how to be better communicators, um, I have them, I want them to think about the conversation like a game of catch. And so I'll give them tennis balls and I'll say, whoever has the ball, they speak and then you throw it back, hand it to the other person. So yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Senator, you're not holding the ball. You can't speak right now. I'll go with that. That works. I mean, they <laughs> act like children. <laughs> Celeste, it is such a pleasure. It's such an honor. Thank you so much. Um, 
for being in the reporter studio. And like I said, I always feel like it's a master class. So I appreciate it so, so much. My pleasure. It's always good to talk to you, Lisa. You've been listening to our conversation with author and NPR host Celeste Headley. You can learn more about her work, especially her most recent book, Speaking of Race, Why Everybody Needs to Talk About Racism and How to Do It. Just find it on our website, thereporterstudio.com. You can also watch a video of this interview. Actually, you can watch videos of all of these interviews. It's on YouTube. Again, just look up The Reporter Studio. Well, coming up next week in the season finale of The Reporter Studio. Early in 2012, Metro shot and killed a unarmed, disabled black man who was mentally ill and happened to be a, a war veteran. And it was captured on video, and it was just an absolute outrage. I mean, even people in the police department were telling me that this was that this was really a true outrage. Something really wrong here. We'll talk with reporter Lawrence Maurer. He works with the Miami Herald and Tampa Bay Times in the Tallahassee Bureau covering state politics. And we'll talk about what it's like to cover state politics, but also how he cut his teeth in this business. Finding a story of a police shooting in Las Vegas that turned into something a whole lot bigger. All of that coming up next week in the season finale of The Reporter Studio. Don't forget that you can find us on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcast, Amazon Music, or Podbean. And if you do listen and you like the product, please subscribe, rate, and review, and also share. I'd love to get this out to as many people as possible. I really do want to make as big a difference as I can in helping people understand what a journalist is and what we do for a living and how we can be better because we do have to work at this and get better at our jobs. Thanks again for listening. I really appreciate it. And we'll talk again next week. This podcast is a production of City of Dreams Media Incorporated. Incorporated.